Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'm talking to one of the two authors of Neither Liberal or Conservative Ideological Innocence in the American Public, published by University of Chicago Press in 2017. I have the real pleasure to have Nathan uh, Calmo on the phone today. Nathan, how are you doing today? Doing real well. How are you, Heath? Uh, I'm doing well. Um, before we get to talk about your very timely book, maybe you can briefly introduce yourself and also your uh, co-author, uh, Donald uh, Kinder. Sure. Well, uh, first, thanks for having me. Um, I'm assistant professor of political communication uh, in the Manship School of Mass Communication and the Department of Political Science at Louisiana State University. And my co-author, Don Kinder, is the Philip E. Converse Collegiate Professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Michigan. Yeah, wonderful. And Philip Converse uh, features prominently uh, in this book. And, and let's begin our conversation uh, right there. You start the book by describing the essay written by uh, Philip Converse in 1964. Um, this essay caused, as you write about, quite a commotion. I wonder if you just sort of summarize uh, the essay for us and, and what the sort of key claim of the essay was and why it received such attention at the time. politics and, and in particular whether they have the sophistication to understand and connect political ideas that seems really necessary for stronger versions of democracy. And Converse is noting uh, in this uh, essay that politicians, journalists, uh, academics often assumed that the public more or less looked like political elites in their the way that they approached politics. And he turned to some novel survey data at the time to really examine that question about whether the public is able to make the kinds of connections that you see uh, among political elites. And in particular, he comes to a, a rather pessimistic conclusion. Uh, he first looks at how people talk about politics when they're asked to talk about parties and candidates and elections and finds that on their own they don't make much use of ideological concepts, these sort of high-order abstract principles to, to describe why they like or dislike uh, parties and candidates. Um, next, he looks at whether they have an understanding when asked to, to explain what the terms liberal or conservative mean and how they align with the, the two parties. Uh, people struggle to do that as well. Um, he broadened this out and said, well, maybe people don't naturally talk about these abstractions and, and maybe don't understand them or can't articulate them at least, but maybe they at least have um, a, a kind of a structure to their political views and in particular their, their issue attitudes that they cohere, that knowing how uh, where somebody stands on one issue um, tells you quite a bit about where they stand on another issue, say um, defense spending uh, versus the, the size and scope of, of government in terms of the social safety net, that kind of thing. And he finds that there's very little uh, what he calls constraint or this, this um, structure of how one issue can view, uh, can predict the others. Um, and then finally he looks, he says, well, maybe 
there's not this, this sort of set liberal conservative idea that we have of, of constraint in these issue uh, opinions. People might still have a, a structure in mind that's more idiosyncratic. So let's look at um, the stability of those views over time. If, there, if there's a central structure, even an idiosyncratic structure in people's minds about how they think about politics, that should provide a, a grounding in their views over the course of a handful of years. And he looks at uh, panel data, of uh, survey data, to find that, in fact, there's a, a very high level of instability in people's um, issue preferences over time on the same issues, on the same questions. Um, and that this suggests that really they don't have a, a, a kind of structure to their, their attitudes at all. So overall, it's a, a, a very uh, pessimistic conclusion that there, there's maybe a, a, a narrow strata of people who are more engaged in politics, who are more knowledgeable about politics, who do have, show some evidence of this. But we're talking about um, maybe uh, one out of every five people in the public and not um, not the majority, uh, to be sure. Yeah, and, and talk a little bit about the, the pushback and the controversy and, and this idea of, of ideological innocence, being innocent of the, the deeply held ideological beliefs that we might believe the public actually holds. Um, you try to reconcile some of the debate. Um, and, and so maybe you could first talk a little bit about the, the pushback on this and how that led you uh, to write the, the book. There's, uh, this is a, a, a long-standing uh, debate, and, and some of the, the pushback came very quickly after Congress published uh, this essay that got uh, a ton of attention. Um, some of the critiques were uh, methodological, saying that, that uh, I won't get into the weeds here, but basically saying that um, that when you ask questions, there's some uh, inherent error in, in the, the responses that people are making and that that, that can cause some trouble, but uh, subsequent analysis seemed to, to knock down some of those concerns. Um, another aspect was that Congress's data were coming from um, the 1950s, which which um, some people saw as a particularly quiet period of, of relatively unpolarized parties and um, before all of the tumult of, of the, the, the um, civil rights movement and uh, Vietnam protests and all of that that really broke out the Great Society program in the mid to late 1960s. Um, and so some scholars thought that, that maybe uh, this non-ideological character, this ideological innocence in the public was just an artifact of the, the time and place that Congress was looking. And, and in fact, when you looked at responses uh, after the 1970s, you saw the same kinds of, of patterns. And so it didn't seem to be a function of the nature of the times. And Congress made pretty bold claims about uh, his findings, not just applying to the U.S. in the 1950s, but, but more broadly than that, across centuries, across nations even. Some of his later work looks at the, the French case about, about similar findings in, in France and basically finding even in a public that's reputed to be especially ideological, they don't look any more ideological than the U.S. So across time and across places, um, one of the things that really motivated our uh, approach in this book is that despite these pretty robust findings um, in that initial sort of dust-up that was caused by a Converse's essay, starting in 1972, you have this new item appearing on the American National Election Study Survey um, that asks people to place themselves as liberals or conservatives or moderates if they had thought about it at all. And um, a, a literature grew up around, a scholarly literature grew up around uh, this finding that you have lots of people who 
seem to describe themselves as liberals or conservatives, and that there seem to be relationships between those descriptions and uh, vote choice, issue preferences, and other sorts of uh, political attitudes and behaviors. Um, and that seems to run directly counter to uh, what Converse was uh, concluding in, in his essay. Um, but it, it turns out that much of that, uh, that research genre uh, on ideological identification really didn't take up uh, Converse's conclusion seriously, and so you have this disconnect, uh, this conflict of uh, no ideology in the public on one hand, and ideology almost as a, a, a key to understanding public opinion, uh, but lines that really didn't speak to each other. So our book is about uh, integrating uh, those perspectives and seeing whether there really is a, a conflict and uh, seeing whether the public still lacks ideological sophistication uh, 50 years later, uh, despite the, the huge changes in politics in terms of party polarization, changes in society in terms of um, education and enfranchisement and the media and information environment that's so different today from uh, 50 years ago. Yeah, so, so what what is your argument about the formation of ideology? Uh, why do some Americans claim to be ideologues while others not so? Well, the, uh, one of the first things that we found when we, when we dove into this is that about half of the public doesn't uh, identify on the ideological spectrum. They either say um, that they don't know or that they haven't thought much about it. That's about a quarter of folks. And another quarter say that they're moderate, that they that they fall in the middle. But if we look at um, what is the sort of the um, the sophistication and sort of the substance of people who are claiming moderation, our our uh, conclusion about that is that the the, the moderate is kind of a, a default category for people who don't have a particularly sophisticated uh, way of of seeing um, uh, of seeing politics. And so the, the key distinction between people who call themselves liberals or conservatives and people who claim not to have thought about it at all or, or claim moderation is political sophistication, this idea that the public is deeply uh, or broadly stratified uh, in levels of political knowledge that you have politics is for some people uh, who find it interesting and find it comprehensible. And for many people, there are other uh, things that they can um, that they prefer to uh, to follow, um, and that difference is key in figuring out um, who is likely to identify on the ide- ideological scale and who says that's really not for me. Um, and and beyond that, then um, even among those who do identify, we find that politi- political sophistication, this level of of engagement in politics, is the, is the key factor, not just for who identifies, but also whether um, ideology has any potency in um, predicting how people um, think about the, the political world. Now, ideology, we're told, is an important factor in our current debate about polarization. Uh, what did you find about whether the country is, in fact, becoming more ideologically polarized? And, and if it is, um, how, how much more polarized than in the past? Polarizing that much, we see over several decades a, a small uptick in the number of people who are placing themselves on the scale, but it's it's relatively small. And we see 
a little bit greater likelihood that people will take a substantive position to put themselves on the liberal side or on the conservative side, uh, more so than several decades ago. But again, that's a, a, a small change and not a large one. And then I should note that uh, unlike party identification, which is sort of a, a running comparison throughout uh, our book, that uh, the distribution of responses on the ideological scale tends to stack up right in the middle of that scale. So if you're going to put yourself on the liberal side, you're going to call yourself slightly liberal. If you're going to put yourself on the conservative side, slightly conservative, um, uh, whereas you see people at the ends of the scale on partisanship really claiming a strong identification um, to those. Uh, in terms of the, the big picture, so you do see those um, small upticks in uh, identification and a little bit of uh, movement to the polls, but but not much. Um, you don't see uh, sort of the mirror image of polarization on ideology the way that you do in terms of partisanship. So in other words, Democrats these days are more likely to take liberal issue positions, um, uh, but it's not the case that uh, liberals are more likely to take liberal issue positions than they were uh, decades ago, so we don't see a, an increase in that way that mirrors the partisan polarization. Um, we don't see more hostility among liberals towards conservatives and among conservatives towards liberals the way that we do with uh, partisans expressing more um, affective uh, hostility towards out partisans. Um, we do see a little bit of an increase in the fusion of, of uh, partisanship, of party identity with, um, with ideological identification, but that still shouldn't be overstated. About 40% of people now share the ideological identification that you would think goes with their party identification. So, so about 40% of the public um, is either Democrat and liberal or Republican and conservative. So we still don't have a majority of folks who are identifying um, uh, in, in that way. With, we're far away uh, from, from that kind of confusion. So would it be right to say that uh, the, the country is, is ideologically innocent but uh, guilty of partisanship? Is, is that part of what you're saying? Um, we haven't. Uh, I think that's the... the the conviction that we have that we have rendered uh, in in the book, um, the, the the parallel throughout of, of partisanship shows that uh, in comparison, ideology is always uh, uh, a weak factor in comparison to to partisanship in terms of the amount of identification, in terms of the power of that identification to tell us anything about um, about political behavior and. Um, Whereas ideology only seems to have much influence on uh, people who are politically sophisticated, we see a wide-ranging uh, influence of partisanship, high potency, even among people who are low in political knowledge um, with, their, with their partisanship, especially in making choices about who to vote for. It's easy for people to make those kinds of connections. So in the absence of these abstract ideological principles, people are primarily guided by uh, their party identifications in, uh, in in almost a tribal way, uh, in in uh, an identification that's rooted very much in uh, broader social identities, and beyond partisanship, people are reasoning about politics on the basis of ethnocentrism and and using their attitudes about prominent social groups to figure out where they stand, um, and not these broad um, 
uh, abstracted political principles that we associate with ideology. Now, how does this discussion of ideology uh, matter to things, other things that we care about, like voting? You alluded to it just a little bit right there, but uh, maybe you could talk a little more specifically about these relationships. One of the reasons why um, ideology is, is probably less potent than, than partisanship in, in voting is that it's, it's really easy to find you know, the D or the R next to a candidate's name on the ballot. We, we contest elections and have a rather cacophonous um, um, experience every, every two years uh, for congressional and every four years for presidential elections in which the, the party is being emphasized over and over again. Sometimes there's uh, ideological ideas that come up in that rhetoric, but we're, they're primarily contested on, on the basis of party. Um, although even when we have um, especially ideological uh, campaigns, it, we often don't see much uh, shift in, in uh, uh, people's ideological response to those campaigns in terms of their identification. Um, the, the big picture is that, that people are able to make their, their electoral choices on the basis of partisanship, whether or not they have much uh, information uh, about politics, whereas uh, ideological identification is really only a useful um, way of uh, moving through the electoral politics if you have the knowledge to uh, make the connections that sort of the broader uh, political structure in your mind that can, can see what relates to what. Um, and so um, that aspect makes um, the, the use of ideology much more conditional in, in its influence on, on voting uh, than partisanship. Uh, one of the things that we see even before we take political knowledge into account is that um, partisanship is, is dwarfing the, the impact of, of ideology in this way. And that difference is especially acute if you uh, take into account the differences in distribution. Um, like I said, you only have 2 or 3% of people in the, the, the most extreme categories of ideology. You've got 30, 40% of people um, who are showing up in the the sort of the polar categories of partisanship, and that means that you have a lot when you estimate the the influence of, of this factor from one end of the scale to the other. You have a lot more people that have that strongest uh, difference going on in their voting behavior when you're looking at partisanship compared to uh, ideology. So that that amplifies uh, that difference, especially when you think about um, half the public either not putting themselves on the ideological scale at all um, or um, choosing the, the midpoint. Yeah, Nathan's um, really interesting book with Don Kinder is called, again, Neither Liberal or Conservative, Ideological Innocence in the American Public, published by the University of Chicago Press this year. Nathan, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much, Ian.